Welcome to the weekly podcast at Second Ponce de Leon Baptist Church. My name is Doc Hollingsworth. I'm senior pastor of this great congregation, and we're delighted that you've joined us. Our prayer for you is that as you listen to this message, you might feel closer to God and closer to God's hope for you. Our scripture this morning is from the first chapter of the book of Colossians. Some of you might remember four and a half, five years ago or so, I preached nine sermons from the four chapters of Colossians. I promise I'm not doing that again. That was a book project years ago. But we are revisiting this soaring, beautiful hymn of the centrality of Jesus Christ in the first chapter of that letter. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope of promise by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but now has been revealed to His saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of His mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is He whom we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Well, for those of you who got up and got ready, coming to church with a burning need to know more about the ancient history of pagan worship, you're in luck. You're going to leave so immensely satisfied. 
idols and, and the worship of multiple gods. There is a burning curiosity to be sure. And I'm here to cover those maddening questions about the Canaanite gods. When we survey the biblical witness, we see all the work, the, the worship practices. It can seem a little, a little primitive, their worship of the pagan gods, even silly to us now. But the ancient world had limitations, and we do too. The people of ancient civilizations were just trying to imagine how the world worked, and then they put language to their experience. So consider this. They planted crops. Sometimes it rained. The crops drank. The crops got healthy. They grew. They produced. Sometimes it didn't rain, and the crops withered and died. So the ancients figured that there was a God, some unseen force that they needed to appease and satisfy so that the God of the weather would do with the weather what was needed for their crops to flourish. And the ancient farmer would give that God a name. That's what we do. We put language to our shared experience. So you and I have agreed that the choir just sang an anthem and not a lawnmower. We put language to our common experience. And so they would name these primitive ideas, and the Ugaritic writings tell us that the ancients agreed to call the god of weather Baal. In southern English, we call him Baal. They were Baal worshipers. You might even make sacrifices to the god of weather. You surely wouldn't want to tempt or anger one of the gods in charge of okra and fresh tomatoes. So you would make sacrifice. And there were other gods, a god for nearly every experience in life. Every common experience seemed to have a god. Ancient Canaanites called the sea god Yam which is particularly confusing because yams have no place in the sea, but we'll put that aside. As our experience and understanding of divine activity developed, we've come to understand there is one God, one divine being personified in Jesus Christ, one great mystery that holds all of life together. We've come to understand that there's not a God of the sea and another God of knowledge and another God of fertility and another God responsible for growing tomatoes and okra. There is one God, the God of the Israelites called Yahweh. And the beginning of wisdom, the foundation for living fully is to understand that the Lord our God is one. One God. The concept so fundamental, so important that the very first law scribbled on the tablet coming down from Mount Sinai says simply, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Except it was not written in King James English. That's just how we're accustomed to hearing it. No other gods. The question is, did this clear and simple message get through to the worshiping community. One God 
who deserves all of your devotion. Fast forward 1,600 years. 1,600 years after the time of Moses, a lot can change in 1,600 years. Remember just 40 years ago, our phones hung on the wall and we went to the movies. That's just 40 years. 1,600 years, a lot can change. Paul is now living in a Greek culture that was advanced in every possible way, so different from the time of Moses. But one thing that had not changed is that the prevailing culture still worshipped many gods. Strangely, the gods, the Greek gods, their names are more familiar to us than the biblical gods that were given names, probably because Marvel Comics never did anything with the biblical gods. But we know the Greek gods, many of them, Poseidon, the god of the sea, Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, Nike, the god of victory, and later the maker of sports apparel. We know these. But ruling over the vast family of gods from his home on Mount Olympus was the great god of the sky, Zeus. Zeus, who is the god of power and control and erotic conquest. And in this Greek-influenced culture, the Apostle Paul writes to a gathered group of Christians meeting regularly in the home of one of its wealthier members. This, this was common. They would gather in each other's homes, and usually because they were in each other's homes, they'd have a meal together, and they'd discuss what they were experiencing and learning about life in relationship with the risen Christ. Correspondence moved slowly in that time, but every now and then a letter would come from another Christian leader of another place. It, it was such a treat when you get a letter that would come from one of those leaders telling you about what was going on in other Christian communities in the ancient world and letters that would encourage and teach. And on this particular night in the little vi- village of Colossae, which is modern-day Turkey, the little gathered church was really excited because the great missionary, theologian, church planter named Paul had written a letter just for them. The scholars call this an occasional letter. That is, it's, it's, it's written for a particular group. It's not a, a just general theological essay. It was written to a particular people with their own particular issues and struggles. It was written to their occasion, occasional letter. And here's the occasion. The church has been led, led away by false teaching, philosophical arguments, Greek ideas about wisdom and gods of wisdom and gods of knowledge and gods of spiritual maturity and gods that will protect you from evil spirits. And Zeus looking down from Mount Olympus, giving instructions to the multiple gods who are at work. That's what the false teachers were out and about and declaring. And the church members sit around the dining room table trying to figure out how to accommodate what they know about Jesus 
into this world of multiple gods that's all the talk. And they unfurl the letter from the Apostle Paul to hear his response to their particular conundrum. Paul speaks to their occasion and with clear and soaring language so there is no confusion at all about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. In this high and glorious hymn, the apostles told the church that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's not to be accommodated in with the other gods they worship. Jesus is to have first place in everything. In him all things hold together. Twelve times in that short reading... I said he or him or himself. Let's be clear. Jesus is your high and singular devotion. Jesus is not to be shoehorned in alongside Nike and Aphrodite as one of the objects of your worship. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwells. In Jesus, God is reconciling the world. In Jesus, all things hold together. This is clear, pounded into your head stuff. Paul is saying your singular devotion is to Jesus. We look back across the years and we might even snicker at the primitive culture of Moses' day. They worship Baal for crying out loud. We, we, we might think we have matured past thinking Zeus sits high upon Mount Olympus and interacting with the lesser gods of Eros and Hermes, the god of overpriced scarves. We confess that we're more enlightened, that we understand there is one great divine mystery. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And because of our personal relationship with the risen Christ, we confess in Jesus the fullness of God dwells. At least that's what we confess. Paul is upping the stakes. Beyond your confession that Jesus is Lord, do you live as though Jesus is the only guiding voice and value in your life? The apostles getting in our face here. The letter from Paul has challenged these Christians meeting in the house church who are trying to set their devotion to Jesus kind of alongside their worship 
of the God of power and control and erotic conquest. But maybe they were just more honest. Maybe they were just more honest than we are about worshiping lesser gods. Because you and I have done some Zeus worship ourselves, if we were honest about it. If a researcher anthropologist from 200 years in the future were to find your calendar, your diary, and your bank statements, who would that researcher say you worship? Would your calendar and your statements show a clear devotion to Jesus as the one in whom all things hold together? Or a dabbling worship of the God of power, control, and erotic conquest. Jesus is not a hobby. Oh, we have travel baseball and tennis in the spring and college football in the fall and some Jesus and piano in the winter. Jesus isn't a hobby. The question is whether our devotion is alongside the other gods of our culture or the primary singular devotion to the living Christ in whom all things hold together. This soaring hymn about the centrality of Christ is in chapter 1. Of course, of course the letter, original letter didn't have chapters. But I mentioned that it was in chapter 1 Because if Jesus is not set above all other values from the beginning, the rest unravels. We make decisions around which God we might follow in the moment. It was a second marriage for both of them. My my cousin, Robbie, married Bryant Millsaps. And so I met Bryant after, uh, when, when I was an adult. They're older than I am, but we were both adults when I met him, and I liked him immediately. And everybody likes Bryant immediately, which is why he had such a successful career uh, in Tennessee politics. He was a politician when they first got married. He was elected Secretary of State in 1990. A lot of people were edging and hoping that he might run for governor of Tennessee. But his real ambition was to be president of the University of Tennessee. So when the sitting governor offered Bryant an opportunity to head the Tennessee Higher Education Commission, he jumped at the chance because the Higher Education Commission of Tennessee this prestigious agency that gave oversight to the University of Tennessee and all the rest of the state colleges and universities. So Bryant was an early political success. Now he was on his way with his next steps in his high-profile career, and everything seemed lined up just right. And then he was fired by the governor. According to the interview Bryant gave the Chronicle of Higher Education, he was ousted because he refused to break the law. 
He said that he was asked to destroy an unfavorable personnel record of one of the governor's friends. In this article, the governor's office had a chance to respond. The spokesperson said simply, I don't think the governor would care to rehash any of it. Bryant was fired. I called him one afternoon in the middle of all this just to check on him to see how, I mean, all of this is playing out in the media. He'd just been publicly fired, which just sounds like no fun at all. And it's headlines in the paper and it's six o'clock news and all of that. I assumed when I got him on the phone, he would be in a puddle of despair. Instead, when I called to check on him, he was just fine. He was totally at peace. And he read me a quote from that morning's Nashville newspaper, the Tennessee, and this is front page, and the quote, I don't remember it exactly, but it went something like this. I was asked to do something unethical. I had to either follow orders from the governor's office or follow Jesus. That's an easy call. I chose to follow Jesus. Can you imagine? That's what he told the newspaper in Nashville, Tennessee. I was called to follow Jesus. Now, I know a lot of people who might have just worshipped Zeus that one time and then taken the the family to church that Sunday. But he had one singular high devotion. There can be no other gods. That is the first of the Ten Commandments. It's the claim that the Apostle Paul is asserting to the gathered church at Colossae. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him all things in heaven and on earth were created, visible and invisible. In this astonishing mystery of love, we are in covenant relationship with the living Christ, the firstborn of all creation, and the singular God of the universe wants to be in relationship with us. Now, a lot of times on Sunday when we gather in here, and rightly so, we come into this room and we worship And give thanks for the many blessings that are ours because of the God who has never broken covenant with us. But today we declare our part in the covenant relationship. We offer our total undiluted devotion and obedience to the one who was created in the image of the invisible God. We face due north. We accept the demands placed on us. We do not worship the God of power, control, and erotic conquest. We commit ourselves to Jesus, as Paul said, so that he might come to have first place in everything. We profess that in him all things hold together, but we also live that singular devotion because Jesus is not a hobby. We hand over our calendar, our checkbook, our lives 
to satisfying our purpose. All things have been created through him and for him. We devote ourselves without fine print or restraint to being ethical and loving, good. We are Jesus' people. We live so that he might come to have first place in everything. No other gods. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for joining us. If you live in the Atlanta area or visiting Atlanta, come and worship with us in person on Sundays at Second Ponce de Leon Baptist Church.